Now let us uh, turn to a few passages of Scripture, beginning with Acts chapter 2. This records uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. We're not going to read the first part of the chapter that uh, records the initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church, but we're going to pick up our reading uh, in verse 29, and we'll read uh, through verse 42. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about three thousand souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayer. Now let us turn also to Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Nor more, no more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Then let us turn our book of forms and prayers to... The Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 18. What do you mean by saying he ascended to heaven? That Christ, while his disciples watched, was taken up from the earth into heaven and remains there on our behalf until he comes again to judge the living and the dead. But isn't Christ with us until the end of the world as he promised us? 
Christ is true man and true God. In his human nature, Christ is not now on earth. But in his divinity, majesty, grace, and spirit, he is never absent from us. If his humanity is not present wherever his divinity is, then aren't the two natures of Christ separated from each other? Certainly not. Since divinity is not limited and is present everywhere, it is evident that Christ's divinity is surely beyond the bounds of the humanity that has been taken on. But at the same time, his divinity is and remains personally united to his humanity. How does Christ's ascension to heaven benefit us? First, he is our advocate in heaven, in the presence of his Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, his members, up to himself. Third, he sends his spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge by the spirit's power. We seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is sitting at God's right hand. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. On this Pentecost Sunday, uh, we commemorate that, commemorate that, that great and that one time event in the history of redemption when our Lord Jesus Christ poured out his spirit upon the church according to his promise. And this involved the ushering in of the last days, uh, the final era, uh, of God's plan for this world until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ again. And uh, this special day on the church calendar also coincides uh, with the next Lord's Day that we've come to in our progress through the Heidelberg Catechism concerning the ascension of our Lord. And actually these... Uh, events are closely associated, as we shall see. In fact, uh, we just read uh, from the Catechism, also from Answer 49, which tells us the ascended Lord uh, sends his Spirit to us, making clear the connection between the ascension and Pentecost. And we want to focus especially on one special work of the Holy Spirit that is also uh, mentioned in this Lord's Day, and that is that by the Spirit's power, uh, we seek those things that are above, not those things which are on the earth. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity, who indwells us, and who indwells us uh, for our sanctification. We confess in the outline of the Apostles' Creed, God the Father and our creation, God the Son and our redemption, and God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification, confessing that special work of the Holy Spirit in conforming us to the image of Christ as he applies the saving work of our Savior to our lives. The ascended Christ sent his Spirit to make people holy. That's another way of expressing what sanctification means. It means to grow in true holiness. And we're going to consider that uh, together. First of all, in connection with the, the Spirit's out, 
outpouring as that relates to the promise of the new covenant. The promise of the new covenant. The prophets, especially Jeremiah and Ezekiel, spoke of the new covenant. And uh, we read from the 31st chapter of Jeremiah, which is kind of the classic passage of the Old Testament that is most often quoted in the New Testament uh, with this language of new covenant. But we must ask, what is meant by this language? What is meant by new covenant? We know that in our Bible we have an Old Testament and a New Testament. And actually the word uh, testament uh, in the New Testament is a translation of the very same word that is uh, sometimes in the New Testament translated with the word covenant. The word diatheke in the Greek language is sometimes rendered with the word covenant. And uh, a few times, particularly in the book of Hebrews, it is translated with the word testament. Now, that could simply confuse matters more in our own thinking. So is the new covenant simply a reference to the New Testament? Is the Old Covenant uh, the Old Testament and the New Covenant the New Testament? Is it that simple? Well, there are a lot of questions and there is a lot of confusion that can arise about this language of New Covenant. So I'm going to attempt to give uh, kind of a, a crash course, if you will, uh, of an explanation of the significance of this language of the New Covenant. But we want to begin by affirming the fact that according to Scripture, uh, there is one overarching covenant referred to by theologians and in our confessions as the covenant of grace. This is God's one way of salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually this covenant of grace, the, the, the essential characteristics of this covenant were announced as early as Genesis chapter 3. Even though the word covenant is not used, there we have a promise that is really at the heart of the covenant of grace because we have a promise concerning the seed of the woman. A promise concerning the Lord Jesus Christ who would bring salvation, who would destroy uh, the devil. So that covenant was proclaimed in Genesis 3, and that covenant was established more formally with Abraham and his seed as God established his covenant with him and with his seed after him. And that covenant of grace is fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom God's promise to Abraham that in his seed, that in that is in Christ, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. It's in Christ, the mediator of the covenant, that God's promises are confirmed, fulfilled, and established. So there is this one overarching covenant of grace. Now that's a theological uh, term and definition, but it's really essential for our understanding of the one way of salvation revealed in Scripture. And it's significant for our understanding of the Bible's own use of the word covenant in many instances. But to complicate matters, or at least in order to uh, possibly confuse us, uh, along with this one overarching covenant of grace, there are these different administrations of that one covenant. 
each with their own distinct features. And they are associated with with key figures and key times in Scripture. There is that covenant as uh, established and revealed to Abraham with promises also that are specific to his uh, literal descendants in terms of the promise of the land of Canaan and many features that had a kind of temporary fulfillment but actually extended beyond their literal meaning to the riches of the new covenant. But again, there is that language of covenant with respect to Abraham, but that language is also used with respect to what is sometimes called the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God established uh, with, uh, with his people Israel, which gave a kind of national shape to that covenant. And then that covenant also as elaborated uh, by God's promises to David with further uh, information about the nature of that relationship that God establishes with his people, which will be secured through the seed and the son of David. But these are also referred to as covenants, even though they are different administrations of the one covenant of grace They are referred to as covenants. Now, Jeremiah, as with other passages in Scripture, Jeremiah contrasts the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, which in the book of Hebrews is actually referred to as the first covenant. Jeremiah contrasts that with the new covenant that he will make. That's what we hear in verse 31 and 32, where it says, as we've already read, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. And then it says that this was a covenant that they broke. Now, we ought not to conclude that that means that uh, there was uh, some deficiency uh, to this administration of God's covenant of grace uh, under Moses with Israel. Uh, it wasn't the pro- the problem was not with God. In fact, in, in the letter to the Hebrews where uh, the writer to the Hebrews quotes from uh, Jeremiah uh, chapter 31, uh, we read, If that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. And we might think, well, that implies that there was some fault with the first covenant. But he goes on to say, because finding fault with them, that is with Israel, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. We must understand that... uh, this administration of the covenant of grace under Moses indeed was gracious. Even in Jeremiah chapter 31, which we read, we have this phrase, though I was a husband to them, God revealed his grace to Israel. In other words, the Mosaic covenant was not some republication of the covenant of works as if God is somehow resorting or referring back to the initial covenant with with Adam, 
which uh, made eternal life dependent upon obedience as if this was a new trial under the covenant of works. No, it was a gracious covenant indeed. But it's also true that the law of God was very prominent in that covenant. The law serves as a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. And so though it was a gracious covenant, indeed, the law was given such a prominent place as to show that they could not be saved by the works of the law. And you see, when that covenant was perverted by people who thought that they could, they were missing the meaning of the revelation of God's grace also in that Mosaic administration. But the contrast lies in the fact that in the new covenant, there is more abundant grace to answer more fully the desperate sin and need of our fallen and depraved condition. We read from Deuteronomy chapter 5 this this exclamation of, of God following Israel's claim, all that the Lord said we will do. And the Lord said, Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. There's actually similar language uh, found in the book of Numbers on this occasion when uh, Joshua uh, came to Moses and complained about the fact that there were certain men, Eldad and Medad, who were prophesying in the camp. And Joshua came to him and says, Moses, my Lord, forbid them. And Moses said to him, Are you zealous for my sake? Oh, that all the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put His Spirit upon them. Now this this expression of a kind of longing that the Spirit of God would rest upon all His people, that's fulfilled, isn't it, in the New Covenant? That's fulfilled at Pentecost. That is fulfilled as all believers partake of Christ's anointing and are anointed by the Spirit to what? To be prophets, to testify to His name, as well as priests and kings. So it's like Pentecost fulfills this longing that the Spirit of God would be poured out in a, in a far richer way, illuminating and enabling all of God's people to prophesy, to testify to the truth in a way that was not true in the Old Covenant. So Pentecost answers that, that longing, if you will. But Pentecost also answers that expression of God when he says, Oh, that there were such a heart in them that they would fear me to obey my commandments. You see, these are the very things which the Lord provides in the wondrous grace of the new covenant. We read it uh, there in Jeremiah chapter 31. I'll read those verses again. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. God promises an internal work. God promises that the law would not simply be on tablets of stone externally. 
but that it would be written upon the heart, upon the mind, so that there is a receptivity, a knowledge of God's will, a love for God's will, a strength to do God's will that reflects the abundance of grace revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jeremiah doesn't mention the Holy Spirit explicitly here in this passage, though he does in others, but we only need to read other passages in which this uh, promise of the new covenant is given and to see how that it is through the Holy Spirit that God's law is written upon the heart. I'm thinking particularly of of uh, Ezekiel chapter 11, uh, where it says, I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within them, and take the stony heart out of their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes, and keep my judgments, and do them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. Here again, that... that uh, very heart of the new covenant, of the covenant promise, the promise of the covenant of grace that will be revealed in richer measure as the Holy Spirit does this internal work of giving a new heart. Or another passage in Ezekiel chapter 36 where we read, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Actually, the next chapter speaks of that also even more emphatically, which we will uh, cite um, shortly. But you see, brothers and sisters, how central this work of the Holy Spirit is to the Bible's teaching of the new covenant and God's special promises of grace to his people. It is realized in the gift of the Holy Spirit and that internal work that purifies and sanctifies the heart. And now we consider that also then in connection with the, uh, the ascension of Christ. The promise, this promise of the covenant and the ascension of Christ. These things are very closely, they are inseparably connected. For one thing, Jesus must return to his Father before he can send the Holy Spirit. Remember what he told his uh, disciples in John chapter 16. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. You see, this next stage in the great work of our redemption required the life, the suffering, the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit could apply that work of redemption to the salvation of the world only after it was accomplished. It was necessary that the Lord Jesus Jesus should finish that work of redemption so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, it might then be applied to the salvation of the world. That's the connection that we read in Acts chapter 2. 
This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Notice the reference, the repeated reference in this passage, actually, to the promise. We just read it in verse 33. Having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. And when we hear that in this verse, we ought to think, first of all, actually, of the promise given to Christ. That he would receive the Holy Spirit as uh, the spoils of victory, as prophesied in Scripture. In such passages as uh, Psalm 68, he has ascended on high, or actually it's in the first person. You have ascended on high. You have led captivity captive and received gifts for men. And that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Not whom Christ received to equip him for his service, anointing him personally to fulfill his office, but whom he received as a reward of his faithfulness. Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations as your inheritance. And that promise was accomplished as the Holy Spirit was given to Christ so that he might pour it out upon the church, so that the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ to all nations might be accomplished through the power of Christ, through his Spirit. So it's a promise to Christ and in him. And through him, then, it is a promise to the church. In verse 20, uh, in verse 39 of Acts chapter 2, when, uh, Peter, uh, addressed this crowd of Jews who had been convicted of their sin, saying, What shall we do? He said, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children, and to all who are afar off. Now, indeed, that that promise here in its context refers in a very focused way to the gift of the Holy Spirit. But the fact is, brothers and sisters, that this promise really includes all the riches of God's covenant mercy in Christ. It includes the forgiveness of sins. It includes the assurance of the resurrection from the dead. It, it includes eternal life. All are communicated to sinners in the gift of the Holy Spirit who applies the redemption of the Lord Jesus Christ in all its fullness. And again, and in connection with this special point of Lord's Day 18 and our theme uh, this evening, we realize that central to this promise of the Spirit is life-changing grace and power. You see, it's in this connection that the Heidelberg Catechism actually quotes from Colossians chapter 3, when it uses that language that by his power we might seek those things which are above. That's the language of, of Colossians chapter 3. And when you look down at that little number that's cited there, it refers to the first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. They say this, 
If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because actually, as we read those words, we didn't find any reference specifically at all to the Holy Spirit. It's all about Christ. It's all about our union with Him in His death and in His resurrection, whereby we are enabled and called to seek those things which are above and not those things which are on the earth. So why does the Catechism quote this passage in connection with the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Well, actually, we might see the answer of Scripture also in the confession of our catechism uh, in, in Lord's Day 20 concerning the Holy Spirit. What do you believe concerning the Holy Spirit? First, that the Spirit with the Father and the Son is eternal God. Second, that He is given also to me so that through true faith He makes me share in Christ and all his benefits. You see, it's the Holy Spirit who is the bond of union with Jesus Christ. It is through the work of the Holy Spirit that we are so united to our Savior that everything he did becomes ours. We share in uh, the power of his death whereby he made atonement for our sins and assures us of the forgiveness of sin. And we share in that power whereby, through the Spirit, we are able to put to death the deeds of the body. And we share in that power of Christ's new life who was raised from the dead. How? Through His Spirit who dwells in us, through whom we are united to the Savior, such that He Himself dwells in us by His Holy Spirit. And it's because of the Holy Spirit's work then that we're able to heed what this uh, chapter goes on to say. The, the first verses in very general terms speak of our union with Christ and the call to seek those things that are above. But then as you read through this chapter, it gets very specific. And it says, therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, and idolatry. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Don't lie to one another. As the elect of God, put on holy and beloved. Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. You see, it gets very specific in terms of the way the power of Christ manifests itself in our lives through the working of the Holy Spirit in that it enables us more and more to live holy lives. And that leads us then finally, brothers and sisters, to consider the promise and the way of the Holy Spirit's working. And there are three things that we want to consider briefly in this connection. And the first is that the Holy Spirit is the one, the divine person, who actually imparts spiritual life, new life. We read from Ezekiel chapter 36 and uh, this wonderful promise of a new heart and a new spirit. You know that chapter 37 
uh, is this passage in which we have this vision of dry bones, where Ezekiel the prophet was given this vision of a valley full of bones, scattered, dead, dry. And the question is, can these bones live? And the prophet says, you know, O Lord. And Ezekiel is told to prophesy. Prophesy to the breath, to the wind, to the spirit. Prophesy. And as he prophesies, what happens? Those bones come together. And sinews and tendons appear on these bones. And then flesh. And then they stand up as an army of people. And this is a vision that God gives of his power to grant life to people who are otherwise dead in sin. That's the application with reference to the house of Israel. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord your God. Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. Now, isn't Pentecost actually a tremendous fulfillment of this kind of prophecy? Isn't it a tremendous fulfillment as the risen and exalted Christ is preached to people whose hands are red with the blood of the Son of God? And they're, they're assured that there is forgiveness in this Savior as they're convicted of sin and they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? And the simple message of the gospel is repent. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit. And they repented. They believed. What, three, four thousand were added to the church. It's like a, an army of, of people made alive by grace through the Holy Spirit's work. Yes, the Spirit's work of convicting people of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. But in that conviction, they called upon the Lord and they were given new life. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit who gives life. This is the explanation for every conversion. This is the explanation for every living member of the church. This is the message of hope for sinners, whoever they may be, however desperate their condition may be. They may have loved the ignorance in which they lived for years. They may have scorned and mocked and poked fun of the message of Christ. But the gospel, even proclaimed in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, is how long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? How long will you fools hate knowledge? How long will you scorners delight in your scorning? Turn to me! And I will pour out my spirit upon you. And I will make my words known to you. Yes, that's the gospel message. A message that includes the declaration of divine power. The me message that includes the declaration of supernatural grace that is able to change lives, to renew hearts. Isn't that good news? There's no condition so desperate. There are no sinners so hopeless that justifies them in concluding that this message of life and hope is not for me because it doesn't come to the capable. It comes to those who have no strength. It comes to those who realize their need for divine grace 
a divine miracle, divine power. And when they come to Christ for it, he never turns them away. The power of his spirit imparts new life. That's the way of the Spirit's work. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit sanctifies by the truth. Again, to go back to this promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah, verse 34 says, No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Now that's a promise of a kind of enlightenment, a kind of illumination that will characterize all believers through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's how John uh, refers to it. That's how John quotes it in his first epistle. He says, you have received an anointing so that you might know the things of God. The Holy Spirit is an effective teacher. Now, that doesn't mean that in the Old Covenant that people didn't have a true knowledge of God. These promises of the New Covenant are all a kind of home, how much more a fullness, an abundance of grace that coincides with the fulfillment of God's promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. For how could the Holy Spirit impart a discernment and knowledge of salvation in the Old Covenant which had not yet been revealed? The Holy Spirit takes the things of Christ and makes them known. Jesus prayed concerning his disciples, sanctify them, sanctify them by your truth. And then he says, your word is truth. And what is the name of the Holy Spirit named by Jesus? He's the spirit of truth. The power of sanctification cannot be separated from the power of the word. It cannot be separated from hearing the word. It cannot be separated from reading the Word, from understanding the Word, and believing it, and and practicing it. Now, that's a great mistake that many people make that leads them sometimes to despise the means of grace. They want some special secret. They want some special boost. They want some special revelation. And they think, this, this is what I really need. No, actually, what they really need is to go to church regularly. <laughs> Actually, what they really need is to read the Bible prayerfully and continually. What they really need are the ordinary means of grace by which God works and sanctifies his people through the truth. We cannot separate the power of God's work through the means that he uses, and that is his word. The Spirit does what no one or nothing else can do. The law is impotent to provide power for obedience. The law was never given for that purpose. The law was given as a road map, as a clear revelation of the pathway of obedience, but the power to walk that pathway doesn't lie in the law. It's found in God's grace, in Christ, through the Holy Spirit. There is no power in correct doctrine in itself. There is no power in moral, moral training. These things themselves, they cannot purify the heart. There is no power in, in uh, worldly counsel to help us address our problems. 
We must say that there is no power in medication or therapy to sanctify the heart. No, these things can be helpful. Sometimes they can provide a kind of uh, stability, if you will, of body and mind. But the real power for change, according to God's will, the power of sanctification, is not found in these things. It's found in the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does what no one or nothing else can do. That, that's a great comfort to us as well. It should be. And also in our desires, our aims, our efforts to help people. We can't be the Holy Spirit to them. We can endeavor to be instruments and means of his working, but he is sovereign in the way he uses our words of admonition or our counsel or our preaching or our teaching. No minister can save anyone. No parent can save their children. It's God through his spirit. Now, we have these precious promises to plead, and we are to plead them, and we're to pray, but we're not to presume that we can do anything. The power is God's, and that can be a, re a great relief, but it also should be a great uh, comfort, and it should be a great stimulus to us that there is power because Christ dwells within us. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think through his power within us. To go back to language used this morning, we ought never to say with respect to what God calls us to do, with respect to what our conscience tells us to do, with respect to what we really know that we ought to do. We ought never to simply say, well, I just can't. It's no use trying. No, no. We're to trust in God's enabling grace and power and appeal to him and believe that indeed he is able to, to enable us to make steps in this pathway of Christian living, to grow in faith and obedience. We're to believe, we're to believe what uh, uh, the catechism teaches uh, concerning the truth of God's word. We're to believe in the power of Christ revealed in his spirit as we face this dark world, as we face uh, the problems that surround us, we can become very discouraged. We're to remember that greater is he who is in us uh, than he who is in the world. And it is Christ who is in us by the power of his Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given to us, given to the church, to sanctify a people for the Lord. Amen.